My coming out story is really, really complicated. So okay. buckle in, you're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Come Out, a podcast where people tell their coming out story. Each episode, we are joined by a new guest who will tell us the story of how they discovered and came to terms with their own identity. They will also talk about how they decided to reveal that part of themselves to the people around them. We hope to spread positivity and support fellow members of our community on their own journey, whatever that may be. So wherever you're listening right now, sit back, relax, and let's share our stories. Welcome to another episode of Come Out. This week, I'm joined by another friend, Simon. Hello, Stefan. Um, can I just say, first and foremost, I've loved listening to this so far, and it's a proper joy to be on it. Um, so thank you. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. So after a bit of discussion, we think we met in about 2007 back in Birmingham. And we actually haven't seen or spoke to each other much since then. I went to university shortly after that, and I guess we kind of lost touch. But you've always remained on my social media, so I've always kind of seen what you're up to, and I guess vice versa. So let's start with what is it you're doing now? What do you do for a living? So my job that actually pays the bills, my full-time muggle job, as I call it, is a training and development practitioner within the hospitality industry right so i get to train people from breakfast chefs or people getting their first job in hospitality like waiting on customers right up until general managers on a variety of topics everything from how to serve the perfect breakfast right through to how to give presentations in front of big groups of people and feeding back figures and facts and making an impact when it comes to setting up a new mission or a target and i'm really really lucky because i genuinely enjoy my day job Mm -hmm. on the side I also am one half of a YouTube duo called The Breaker Lakers, who do West End and national theatre news reviews and interviews all across the country, about 100 a year. And that also takes up a huge amount of time, but it's also massively enjoyable. So I'm really, really lucky, really. That actually makes total sense. You introduced me to the show Wicked. That sounds like something I would do. So I take it that your uh, job is affected by COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment I'm furloughed because here in the UK, it's a bit of a shitstorm when it comes to how coronavirus is going down here and the numbers and hospitality has completely stopped. When did you first know you were different or gay? So I think it's a bit cliche to say I've always known something was different with regards to my sexuality. And when I was younger, it was always what I was attracted to that was sort of different, but in a a mundane way, not in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to get called effeminate, for example. So I was into things like dancing and costumes and glitter and all of those things that I perceived to be fabulous at that time. Not necessarily a sexual attraction, to anything because pre-puberty I hadn't had that sexual awakening Mm -hmm. but there was always something about me which didn't quite fit with other boys in my peer group you know when they were into football and wrestling and all of the things that are stereotypical boyish I just didn't give a shit about like it wasn't my bag so I'd be attracted to groups of people that that had shared interests to me Mm. but those people tended to be girls or other effeminate boys I think people were telling me I was different before I realized I was different I wasn't your stereotypical lad yeah and 
that's when I started to really realize, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like other boys. So what was it like at school? So sports for me was when I, I really stood out like a sore thumb. I would always be picked last for the sporty teams. It just wasn't something I was interested in. <laughs> I, I, I took a, a bit of an approach to it. Like I take to my dieting habits and my weight loss habits. Cause like, I'm not a huge fan of exercise. Cause I'd rather be hungry than sweaty. <laughs> so that was what I would do in team sports. I'd be the one that just mainly stood around striking a pose. And I remember teachers saying to me, like, you've got to get involved here or calling me sports sports just because I was really vocal about this isn't for me. Like, I don't want to chip a nail almost. <laughs> like, so please, can we not have any expectations on me that I'm really going to get down and dirty with the sports thing? <laughs> I, I mean, I had very much the same experience. I remember being on many sports teams. I got put on the basketball team purely because I was tall. And and um, I spent most of the time basically on the court, hoping that no one would pass me the ball. I'm exactly the same because I'm 6'2", so I was saying I was tall. So people would just assume that I was going to be good at basketball. <laughs> Do you remember your first celebrity crush? I remember being around seven or eight years old and being completely and utterly obsessed with Keanu Reeves, like <laughs> to the point of complete idolation of the guy. And I just wanted to be him. Mm-hmm. And I had my hair in the in sort of the, the same hairstyle that he had in Bill and Ted. And I used to play games in the playground where I pretended I was him. And there was a little doorway that had a little metal handle in it. I used to pretend that was the phone box and that I'd be jetting off to different points in time in the phone box and stuff looking back on it now it was a crush like i was completely in a way that a young girl would have a justin bieber poster on the wall or whatever that might have been at that time yeah i was like about keanu reeves yeah (laughs) so tell me a bit about like growing up where was it that you like spent your childhood and where did you grow up so growing up for me was in in the black country i'm a wolverhampton lad born and bred (laughs) And I was brought up in a a very much working class family, very much working class expectations. My father was the youngest with um, two older brothers. So he'd always been a bit of a bruiser having to fight to assert his dominance. I was an only child. So it was a little bit different to me with regards to status. But I think there was always an expectation that I would step into my father's shoes when it came to being the dominant, assertive, slightly violent, which which he always was growing up. Bit of a, um, I don't want to use the word bully. I don't know if that is, is entirely fair, but certainly alpha male And mm-hmm. be, being the sort of son and heir of my father and being that only child, there were expectations of me as a family to carry on the family mantle and to be a certain way and I think it became quite clear to my father quite early on that I wasn't going to be the Simon that he expected me to be when he dreamt when you know when he dreamt of this heir coming up and and being the one to sort of take the family name to the next level he didn't anticipate a slightly effeminate sports hating ballerina which is basically what he got um so growing up for me was interesting in that environment i still go back and visit my grandmother very very often and there is a certain feeling for me of what a man is you know being a man's man Mm -hmm. and sort of and being a bit of a lad and I just wasn't and still not that. So although I grew up there, the first opportunity to escape Wolverhampton, I took it and moved away quite early. And and um, I, I miss certain things about the 
space. When was it that you started to connect you being different to being gay? Like, when was it that you started to make that connection? When I was 14, I had a girlfriend um, which was steered really by, I feel, a lot of peer pressure. A lot of the expectations that I'd got from my family to get a girlfriend, to be a certain way and to project a certain image. Mm -hmm. I was bullied relentlessly at school. It's, it's sad now because I feel maybe I use that girlfriend to try as a bit of a shield to try and protect myself from some of the homophobic bullying that I was experiencing. But I certainly felt I had to act or it would protect me if I was seen to be doing certain things. So when I got a girlfriend at 14, a lovely girl, um, who was a, a kind of a bit of a kindred spirit, really, and we had a great time. And I feel sure if I'd have come out first, she'd have ended up as a fag haggard. <laughs> the period from when I was 14 to when I turned 15, both of us have got hormones raging at the time. Both of us are, are getting more and more aware of our sexual beings. And I couldn't bring myself or found it very, very difficult to engage with her sexually. Mm -hmm. So then it became a real question of what am I attracted to? What am I physically attracted to? What is it that makes, that turns me on, that gets me going as a sexual you know, someone undergoing a sexual awakening at the age of 15, and it wasn't her. So then that started to really throw doubt into what I thought my sexuality was at the time. Is it that that made you decide to come out? No. My coming out story is really, really complicated. So okay. buckle in, you're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're all ears. So I was with this girl for about a year and it sort of wasn't going the way either of us wanted to go. Most of the time that I spent with her was just us playing video games and hanging out and there wasn't any intimacy. Mm. There was this boyfriend girlfriend relationship without any of the things the things that maybe actually define you as boyfriend or girlfriend so that relationship ended uh, and I thought okay what is it I want and started to <clears throat> experiment with the idea that I might gay right it was really the internet that tipped me over the edge it was going online and exploring um, forums for gay people and seeing what they said about themselves it was probably to a certain degree, probably pornography and a curiosity about the male form, curiosity about men as sexual beings that really made me think, okay, is this something that I'm attracted to? Is this something that I, I want? Is this something that is, defines my sexuality? Mm -hmm. So I went on to a few gay chat forums at 15 and started to talk to God knows who, <laughs> because you can hide behind a veil. You know, I can only imagine who these people might have been at that time. Yeah. But I got lucky and I got talking to somebody else that was 15, and we ended up having a telephone conversation um, after talking on these online chat chat um, forums. A guy called James who lived in Stoke-on-Trent, which was about an hour, an hour's train journey from Wolverhampton to where he was. And we started chatting on the phone and he felt exactly the same as me. He'd had a girlfriend the year before. He thought something was wrong. So he'd gone online to try and find people that had shared feelings to keep. Mm -hmm. And the summer between my two, my final two years at school, so between year 10 and year 11 here in the UK, we decided to meet up and I got on a train to Stafford because that was about half 
way between Stoke-on-Trent and Wolverhampton. And we went on a cinema date. Yeah. And it was him that really brought me out of my shell and said, I feel the same as you, you know, and I think this is who we are. And we started to explore that side of ourselves together. And it was, it would have been that sort of mutual safety that we had in being able to express ourselves that that started to make me more comfortable with who I was. Mm -hmm. So during that same summer, I managed to pluck up the courage to tell a couple of my school friends about him and about who I was and what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And they were the first people that I came out to and actually said, look, I think I'm gay and I think I've met a guy and I'm attracted to him and he's really nice and this is who I think I am. How about your family? Now, my father being that alpha male, being this dominant character and being somebody that had been outwardly and explicitly homophobic during my upbringing to the point where he would say things when there were gay characters on telly. Oh, my God, they deserve to be shot to refusing to watch things that were on TV if they featured gay lifestyle or gay characters. I knew pretty soon that that wasn't the time to tell him. You know, I managed to confide in a couple of friends, but I knew where the line was. I thought, okay, my father can't know about this. Probably ever is what I thought at that point. It might be something that I'm never able to talk to him about, but certainly not at 15 living under his roof. Then um, during that same summer, a little bit later, actually, it would have been the very early September. We'd just gone back to school and to enter my final year. Of, of my school in my GCSE year and the school had picked a few people to study sign language in the evening yeah so I used to go to this after school club to do sign language and then after it had finished I used to use the pay phone remember when pay phones were a thing <laughs> yeah this was a the real turning point in my life I called him up and said I'm on my way home just to let you know I'm going to be about 20 minutes what's for dinner I'm safe I'm on the way back just checking in and something that he'd asked me to do because it was September, the nights were drawing in. <laughs> and I remember him being a little bit offish on the phone. So got home, walked into the lounge and said, is everything all right? And he pulled out from next to his armchair a copy of the Gay Times that I had bought and hidden under my mattress in my bedroom. And you know the Gay Times, it's not pornographic like it wasn't hardcore porn it was more fashion lifestyle affairs events that sort of thing yeah and he stood there and said what's this i was completely unprepared for what i was going to say the idea of having that conversation with my father was something which belonged way in the future if ever so i thought what do you do here what what can i say yeah is it like your parents have found a packet of cigarettes in your room and you can say, oh, I'm just, I'm just holding it for a friend or it's not mine? And he said, is it yours? And I said, yeah, it, it is mine. What did he say? And he said, okay, uh, are you a homosexual? And I, I looked at him and I said, I think so. It was also new to me at that point. I said, I think maybe. And this is something that always stuck in my head. He said, are you a practicing homosexual? Now, the sassy bitch in me now say that I don't need to practice here. I'm really good at it. But um, <laughs> the sex thing was the real, like, that was the sticking point for him, the idea that two men might have physical contact with each other. It was not the concept of being gay. It became very clear to me. It was the stigma around the act that was the issue for him. Yeah. And I said to him, that's none of your business. You know, I don't talk about you and your sex life and ask you questions about your sex life. It's not 
for you to ask me those questions. And he said, well, I can't have a homosexual living under my roof. Uh, this time tomorrow, I want you and everything that you own gone from this house. And we didn't speak for seven years and I was homeless that very next day, basically. Wow. So what did you, what did you do? I... I put in a phone call to one of the girls that I'd come out to previously, just that a month or so before, and told her what had happened, said, my father's found a copy of the Gay Times. He's saying he wants nothing to do with me, doesn't want me under his roof. I have nowhere to go. I was estranged from my mother, so I didn't have her or that side of the family, and said, what do I do? So she went and had a conversation with her parents mm-hmm. and came back on the phone and said, you can come here. Thankfully, uh, and her parents took me in got me through basically and it felt like a real I, I got very very lucky and like I said, I'm not a fatalist I don't believe in everything being mapped out for you but I'd got a family in my life that weren't judgmental mm. that were allowing me to be myself that were saying this isn't your fault and were willing to take me in uh, if it hadn't have been for that God knows what would have happened but um, it was them. They they got me through that period. Did you speak to your dad again? My father made it very, very clear at that point that it wasn't something that he would ever be able to accept and wouldn't ever be able to understand. Um, things have changed, uh, and we'll come on to that a little bit, and did get better. My relationship did get better with him after that sort of initial seven-year period. Seven years? That's such a long time, though. And there wasn't zero contact in that time. What there was was very, very limited, very strange, very Mm -hmm. difficult contact in those seven years. But from 15 to 22, I was practically on my own. Wow. Was it easy for you to tell people after you were not living with your dad? Yeah, it wasn't, I wouldn't say easy, but I did feel a lot like the choice had been taken out of my hands because I suddenly I was living with a school friend. So my peers and people in my school year were asking questions about that, like, why on earth are you living with her? Like, what has happened? Mm. I could have tried to make up an excuse. I could have tried to make up a story about what had happened. But I felt at that point, I have nothing left to lose, really. You know, I, this mm. is the chance if I'm going to have any, uh, you know, it's as good a chance as any to just own up to what's happened and actually just be open about it. Mm. You know, I was a homeless 15-year-old. His family had rejected him. And we were living in Section 28 times, you know, at, at that at that point in history, school, my school did not know how to deal with that situation. Mm. Somebody being openly gay and as vocal about it as I was at that time was something that they just couldn't deal with through fear, really, because a local education authority had said you, you cannot promote homosexuality as an alternative, you know, viable way of life. Mm. And how they interpreted and how a lot of schools interpreted that rule was to just avoid the conversation, full stop. A lot of them wanted to be doing what they could but the fear of what the local education what the local government would do if they found out that those things and who they would hold accountable if they ever saw a teacher saying it's okay to be gay really did make me feel like I was on my own even more Mm. and some teachers at that time you know were out outwardly homophobic and could actually get away with that homophobia because no one was holding them to account or something. Do you remember a time when that happened to you? I remember one particularly violent episode of bullying where I was um, held down in the school playground and the waste from the lunch kind of cafeteria was emptied all over me. And I remember going to my head of year in tears and saying, I don't know why this is happening to me. I've not done anything wrong. Please help me. For her to say, unfortunately, Simon, it's homophobia. It's always going to be an issue for you if you are who you are. And you're going to have to learn to deal with it. 
and that's your responsibility. Oh. But at that time, when Section 28 was still enforced, that was the position and that was, you know, that was teaching the year 2000. What kind of things did you do to help yourself in that situation? Humour for me has been a big defence like being able to be the funny one be the one that sort of tells jokes be entertaining is a massive has always been a big shield to me against my problems yeah it only became when I probably turned 30 that I reflected on it as a oh shit I can't believe that happened and that could have gone one of two ways and actually I'm lucky that I you know survived it Mm. I sort of used to shake it off a lot like I sort of used to say oh well it's sort of it wasn't that big a deal because I survived and at the time when you're in it the urge and the instinct to just to survive to the next day really doesn't give you or afford you a lot of space to dwell on it so I didn't let it affect me mentally at the time because it, my priority was just making sure that I was safe, I was fed, I'd got money, I'd got resources, whatever it was, just to get through. Mm-hmm. So I didn't deal with it at the time other than, you know, make light of the situation. And mm. Made a lot of effort to make sure that I was surrounding myself with the right sorts of people because there were people looking back on it that could have easily have taken advantage or maybe even tried to take advantage of my vulnerability at that time. Yeah. But luckily enough, I had strong influences on forces. I got very, very lucky because at 15, 16, I fell in. I was drinking in bars back then. I was going out to gay bars in Wolverhampton, pretending I was 18. Mm. And I fell in with Gay Student Union of Wolverhampton University because they used to have a social club every Thursday. And I just happened to be there on a Thursday when they happened to be there. And they sort of were like, oh, do you want to come and sit with us? I used to be on my own a lot. Um, Do you want to come and sit with us, get to know us? And they took me under their wings. So I was mixing with university students who were three, four years older than me, a lot of who had their own coming out stories, some of whom have had difficulties like I'd had and saw me as a bit of a younger brother sort of figure. Yeah, They were the people that made me get up in the morning. They made me get a job and said, you know, you cannot let this situation define you. You don't need the support of a family. It's where your family now. Mm. It's a certain amount of carving out your own way and making conscious decisions to surround yourself with the right sorts of people and create your own family. And also a certain amount of luck. And I got lucky that I was in the right time and right place with those people. And it was them that got me through. I don't know how I would have dealt with that situation. Like, I'd like to think that I would have been resourceful like you and, and put myself out there and found those people. But I mean, you don't, you never know how you're going to react until you're in that situation, I guess. So you said that you didn't speak to your dad pretty much for about seven years. When, when did that start to change? It wasn't until the t- around the time that I met you. Um, really that things started to improve. Mm. When I was living in Birmingham, I think he got wind that I was of where I was. And I can't remember the exact situation, but there was definitely an olive branch moment. And I remember him turning up at the house that I lived at when we first met in Birmingham City Centre. Yeah. Um, So that would have been around 2007 Mm. and um, turning up and sort of actively saying, okay, what is going on with you? What is, what is it? What are your needs? Who is Simon now? What's going on? And I can't remember the exact thing that sparked it, but I remember him suddenly being there and, you know, slowly, slowly, gently, gently Mm -hmm. allowed him 
to get to know me, but with a very much an attitude of either accept this or stay away again. Yeah. You know, I don't, it's been seven years and I've sort of survived and I've managed to, to get to this point without you. I have an independence and I certainly don't need you for anything. So if you are going to come back into my life, it needs to be on my terms. Yeah. And, and an expectation that he would accept that. Now, my father has never outwardly acknowledged what happened when I was 15. Mm. He's never, certainly never apologized for that there's a name for this there's an actual syndrome for it mm-hmm. where he has created sort of a false memory in order to deal with maybe a certain amount of shame and guilt that he feels about that period right it's really really wicked actually because um i remember the first christmas that i was with my now husband taking him to meet my father and I remember him telling stories that, about holidays we'd been on and things that had happened that he remembered happening in the period between, uh, in the period where we weren't talking to one another that never, ever happened. Right. So all of the things I told my, my now husband, Nathan, about that period, I could see Nathan looking at me like, you weren't talking to him at that point. And I had to explain afterwards. That holiday he reckons we went on in like 2004, like never happened. I mean, it would have been nice to hear, and I'm sorry, and I'm, it was really shit what you went through. Mm. But I also sort of acknowledged that he felt a guilt. Like there was a deep-seated upset within him about what he'd done. So even though he'd never said it, I knew that somewhere within him, that's how he felt. And that was enough for me to start thinking, okay, I can, I can bridge this, you know, I can build it. And that would have been around 2013. I see him as a as a Christmas and birthdays father. Right, yeah. But nothing else in between. Yeah. Wow. That's a tough thing to go through. Would I have changed anything about it? Maybe because I was so young and so vulnerable and it was difficult at that time just to put it off a little bit. But have the ends justified the means for me? Absolutely. You know, I am so fiercely, have such a clear sense of self mm-hmm. as a result of what happened to me. And I have... A, and sort of an expectation of of people to sort of get on board or get out. And I think it's a real healthy thing to do because if someone doesn't want to accept all of you, they don't deserve any of you. Right. I've told people that are close to me now, you know, about what's happened to me in my past. And there's one thing that I'm really adamant about when I talk to people about my story is I'm not expecting you to feel sorry for me. Like, mm-hmm. I don't feel sorry for myself. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a woe is me sort of a person. Because I, I know, you know, my life now is something that would potentially would not, it would not look the way it does if those things hadn't have happened to me. Because I never thought in my life, I was brought up by people that were telling me, um, oh, to be gay means that you'll always be on the fringes of society and people will hate you. Family isn't for you. You know, you'll never be really happy without a woman and, and a family in your life. And those those doors and those avenues are closed to you. And that was that was what I couldn't believe. And, I, you know, I, I sit here now as an open gay man who is proud, who has a fantastic job, has a really rewarding career, who has a husband and who has two children. And all of those things I grew up being told and believing weren't available to me. What does it feel like to be the father figure in the situation now? Can I just say that having kids is batshit. Like, it is the most crazy ride you will ever go on in your entire life, no matter who you are. Nothing prepares you for having kids. But using your situation 
and trying to stay positive in no matter what's happened to you. I think, I, and I hope that it enables me to be a better parent to my kids than than, than I than the, the parenting that I experienced because you sort of you know what felt bad for you or you know what has harmed or what has held you back or repressed you or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh, it's my mission in life just to make sure that my kids don't have those negative experiences that I had certainly not for something as fundamental as them being themselves <laughs> which is something that I always encourage but without going through that negative period I, I don't know if I could be the parent that I am. I don't know if I could be the parent that I want to be. That's a, that's a great way to think about it, really. Yeah, and there is a lot of positive out there. You know, it's not, coming out is not easy for a variety of reasons. It's that age-old adage of saying it gets it gets better because it, honestly, hand on heart, it genuinely does get better. And also, you are independent, you are your own person and you can form an independent life for yourself and build a world around you that accepts, appreciate and, and loves you for you. Uh, and so you have to put a little bit of work in. It's not always that easy and you've got one life and it's up to you to make the most of it. And being a theatrical vlogger, I'm going to quote, I am who I am here and say, there's one life and there's no return and no deposit one life so it's time to open up your closet that's a great way to end it i really want to thank you for like being on the podcast and sharing your story i'm really grateful and I, like i say i really hope that it helps people that find this podcast wherever they find it that they are going to get to hear your story because i think that they there's things to be learned from everyone's story but you know a particularly difficult story like yours there's so much as a society that we can learn from that so yeah thanks so much for like sharing with us no thank you thank you for having this platform to enable to me to say to you know people that might find themselves in in a situation where um, life is difficult that it gets better you know nothing is perfect nobody's perfect but you're you and that's enough Thank you if you stuck with us for this slightly longer than normal episode. As usual, if you want to put a face to the voice, check out our Instagram at Come Out Podcast. And don't forget to check out The Breaker Leggers on YouTube and social media. Thank you. Just like I say, a massive thank you. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on Come Out the Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please look for us on social media by searching Come Out Podcast or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us spread the word and we'd love to hear from you. If you know anyone who might benefit from hearing these stories, please share it with them. Or if you need support on your own journey, you can find more helpful resources on our website, comeoutpodcast.com. Until next time, be kind, be supportive, and most of all, be yourself.